Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. It's great to see you all. Uh, those of you I can see on the big screen, uh, there's a number of people here, about 48 screens. Um, so it's good to see everybody. Uh, we have some, the Sainsbury's, for those of you who don't know the Sainsbury's, um, they are coming to us all the way from England. So we're so delighted to have them with us. So um, what a wonderful thing to be able to have this kind of technology. It's a challenge to us, of course. It's not the circumstances are not uh, circumstances under which we want to have to do this. But on the other hand, there are uh, some real benefits that have come out of this um, COVID thing as far as being able to do more in terms of reaching the whole world, really, with the gospel. So we're grateful, at least, for the way that God has worked through this. But let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer as we begin our study uh, today of this epistle to the Philippians. O oh, gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word. Assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, last week we started with the introduction to Paul's epistle to the Philippians, a brief letter compared to some of Paul's other letters, but nevertheless a letter that is important for us, especially in these difficult times, because it is a letter that is filled with joy and with hopefulness and confidence, and that's exactly what we need in the midst of this pandemic when we're so discouraged and so dispirited. But let's go ahead and read through just the first few verses of Philippians chapter 1, because even though this is the introduction, there is a great deal that has been packed into just a few words. You're going to see that almost every word that Paul uses here is pregnant with meaning and significance. So Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When we started looking at this last week, this particular epistle, uh, one of the things that we said was that Paul really um, was writing a, a brief book. Uh, it's a book that's worthy of our study because, if for no other reason, it's an apostolic book. And Paul was an apostle specifically chosen by Christ to be a witness to the gospel, and indeed a witness, although as he described himself as one born out of time, a witness to the resurrection. We said it's a joyful letter. It's only a few chapters long, but it is a joyful letter. Paul uses that word joy or happiness no less than 16 times in four chapters. So that's on average four times every chapter. Like many of Paul's letters, this was a epistle that was written to a church that he knew very well. That wasn't always the case. We said that Paul's most famous letter is probably his letter to the Romans, and that was written to a church that Paul had not established it was a church that was already in existence, although it was a church that he longed to visit because he knew of its significance and its strategic location and importance. But most of his letters were written to churches that Paul had a direct connection with. Many of the churches that he had established received letters from him. That was the case with Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Paul had established this church on his second missionary journey, uh, a journey that he made with two traveling companions, Silas and Timothy. And we talked a little bit about Paul's uh, missionary strategy last week. We said that Paul, um, from this second missionary journey on, begins to focus his attention primarily, not exclusively, but primarily on the great metropolitan areas of the ancient world. On his first missionary journey, he visited cities like Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. But we said that those cities were what we would call um, small cities. Um, they were not towns, they were not villages necessarily, like the villages that Jesus visited in Galilee, but they were cities, but not major cities. Uh, they were not like the, the great Londons or Parises of the ancient world. But that changes on this second missionary journey. Uh, Paul is going to visit Philippi, which was a leading city, we're told, of the Roman province of Macedonia. 
It wasn't the capital of the province, that was Thessalonica, and Paul's going to visit there as well, but it was a major city, a leading city on one of the major east-west trade routes of the ancient world, located right in the center of what was known as the Ignatian Way. So it was a very important city, and we're going to see that Paul begins to focus attention on the cities because he sees that as the most effective means of getting the gospel out to as many people as quickly as possible. Uh, we said that in the cities, everything comes and goes, all of the fashion and so forth. And so it wouldn't be long before the gospel itself was coming and going. I remember, I, I've shared this with some people in the past, I remember one of a, a trip that my wife and I made to England, and um, she wanted to visit Herod's department store, as I think many people do, and um, one of the things that she wanted was to buy a, a pair of shoes, and they call them, ladies, you'll know what these are called, they're called mules, and she wanted to buy these shoes, she was intent on getting them, they were all the rage here in the United States at the time, and so we went to Herod's department store, this major department store where they say they can get anything from anywhere, we went to the women's department, my wife went up to the lady standing behind the counter, and she said, I am looking for a set of mules. These, these are a unique kind of shoe. And the lady looked at her down her nose from behind the counter, and she said, oh, darling, those went out seasons ago. And that just goes to show you how things change, how things come and go so quickly in the cities. What was popular here in South Carolina went out seasons ago in London. Well, that's why Paul begins to focus his attention primarily on the great metropolitan areas, because he knows that that's the center of trade and commerce and fashion. And if you can establish a Christian presence in those great metropolitan areas, it wouldn't be long before the good news of Jesus Christ, like everything else, was coming and going throughout the ancient world. You've heard the expression, all roads lead to Rome. Uh, that was figuratively and literally true in the first century. Uh, the Romans were great road builders. Those of you who live in England know that some of the Roman roads are still in existence and still being used today for modern traffic. So Paul had this missionary strategy, and I've said before that this is one of the things the church needs to be serious about. There's a great difference between being busy and being productive. Many churches, many people are very busy, but they're not going anywhere. You know, the mouse or the rat that runs on the wheel is working like crazy, but he's not getting anywhere. And sometimes that's the way it is with the church. So especially when it comes to mission work, we need to be strategic. We need to think about how we can make the biggest impact with the time and the resources that we have. And certainly Paul was a strategic thinker, and obviously his strategy was successful because here we are over 2,000 years later studying this epistle to the Philippians. So Paul begins to focus on the great metropolitan areas of the ancient world. One of those was Philippi. He went into this city. We said that it was a very Gentile city. Most of the places where Paul went, there was some sort of Jewish contingent or Jewish community, but that was not the case in Philippi. There wasn't even a synagogue located in Philippi. Now, bear in mind that the only thing that was required in order for a synagogue to be formed was 10 Jewish men. This appears to be the first place that Paul visits in which there is no synagogue, which tells us there were not even 10 Jewish men living in this city. This was a city that had been established by former soldiers of the Roman army. And so they prided themselves on their connection with the imperial capital and with Caesar. This was a the center for the cult of uh, Caesar worship, emperor worship. So Paul goes into this city. Uh, he has a rough start. We said that the, the three people that he encountered were unlikely converts. Lydia, this woman who was a dealer in purple cloth, then a slave girl, and then the Philippian jailer. But in spite of the rocky beginning, nevertheless, a church was established there in Philippi, and that church would go on for decades to come to have an impact throughout the ancient world. So God works from small beginnings to produce great results. Indeed, Paul tells us that it is God's pleasure to take the, the despised things, the, the little things in life, the things that are not, to bring to naught the things that are. That should be a great encouragement to you and to me. Because what that means is that it doesn't matter whether we feel that we're qualified for the task of being a witness for Jesus Christ. God can use us. 
I like to say that God doesn't always call the qualified, but he always qualifies the called. So God, it is his pleasure to take the small things, the despised things, the things that are not highly regarded in the eyes of the world, and yet use those in a mighty and powerful way. And indeed, that's exactly what he did here in Philippi. So Paul's writing to this church that had been established on this second missionary journey. He's writing sometime later, years later, as a matter of fact, he is imprisoned in Rome. This was the first of his imprisonments in Rome. He's under house arrest. But everybody seems to have forgotten Paul. Everybody goes on with their life. And Paul, of course, had traveled great distances. And in the ancient world, it wasn't easy to communicate the way we're communicating right now. We can communicate across to England right now, across the Atlantic Ocean instantaneously. But that was not the case, of course, for Paul. And so there would be long periods in which they would have no contact from the apostle. The only means by which he could communicate with these churches or these people that were near and dear to him was by means of letter. And it would take a great deal of time for letters to travel uh, great distances to other parts of the world. So people had forgotten about Paul. Everybody, it seems, except for the Philippians. The Philippians remembered Paul, and according to what he says in this letter, they had apparently sent messengers along with a gift to him to alleviate his suffering. Now, whether that was a monetary gift or, or something else, we're not really sure. But the point is that Paul was deeply touched by their generosity, deeply touched by the fact that everybody else seemed to have forgotten him, but the Philippians remembered him. They had compassion on that man who'd made such an impact on their lives, who brought them the word of eternal life, and they never forgot him. And so the purpose of this letter, in many respects, is just to say thank you. That's what Paul is doing. He says, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you. He is thankful for the fact that they have remembered him, that they have remained faithful to him. But of course, Paul is an apostle. Uh, he has been instructed to encourage Christians he has a responsibility to build up the body of Christ, to build up the church. So while he wants to thank the Philippians, at the same time, he wants to encourage them. And that's really what the bulk of this letter is going to be about. Paul's going to thank them at the beginning, but then he's going to give them a word of encouragement. This is not a letter of correction. That's certainly what we have in First and Second Corinthians and in Galatians. Paul is correcting those communities that had gone off the rail. That's not the case here with Philippians. This is a word of encouragement, and this is one of the reasons we said we need to study Philippians right now, because we need encouragement. Paul encourages them, first of all, to stand firm in the midst of persecution. This was a very, as I said, Gentile Roman city, and one of the charges brought against Paul and Silas when they first visited the city was that they were advocating customs not lawful for Romans to practice. That was not the case, but that was the charge that was brought against them. It was an anti-Semitic charge, and it could have gotten Paul executed had it not been discovered that he was, in fact, a Roman citizen. So Paul was well aware of the fact that as he had faced persecution, so would these new Christians in Philippi. There would always be that pressure, that pressure from the world to conform, to force these people into its own patterns of behavior. And so Paul was writing this letter to encourage them to stand firm in the midst of difficulty. He was also encouraging unity. He knew how difficult it could be when persecution came in and the church became divided as a consequence. So Paul was encouraging unity. They were much safer together than they were apart. He wanted to caution them against legalism. Uh, one of the things that you'll notice about Paul is that he has a problem with those on the very far right, and he has a problem with those on the very far left, the very liberal members of the community, the very um, legalistic members of the community. Paul knew that Christianity is a, is a religion of grace. So the danger is always in the extreme. So he was encouraging them to be cautious against the legalists. And then the fourth thing Paul was doing, he was commending two of his partners in the gospel, Timothy and Epaphroditus, to be received by this church so that the church might listen to what these men had to say. So that's the real purpose of the letter, and we talked about that last week. We also took a brief look at the greeting. Um, the letter begins in the typical way that letters in the first century begin, 
with the sender stating his name and his credentials and then addressing those who were the recipients. And that's exactly what Paul does. He describes himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. We said the actual Greek word there is doulos. It means bond servant or slave. Paul regarded himself as a slave. He had once been a slave to sin, a slave to the law, but now because of Christ's grace in his life, he had become a slave to righteousness. The irony here, of course, is that it is in becoming a slave to Jesus Christ that we find true freedom. And it's in being a slave to the world and its passions and its vagaries and fashions that we ultimately become slaves. So Paul says, we're all slaves, we're all servants. We're either servants of the world, servants of sin and the passions of the flesh, or we are servants of Jesus Christ, which seems like slavery to the world, but actually brings liberation to the believer. Paul, that's how he describes himself as a servant. Here's how he describes the Philippians. He describes them as saints to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. And this is really where we left off last week. We said that the saints, as Paul understands them, are not a special class of Christian. These are not people who have done extraordinary things, who have accomplished extraordinary things for the, for the sake of the gospel, and as a result have been granted this coveted status of saint. No, a saint was simply one who had been set apart for a purpose. And that meant that any Christian was a saint in Paul's eyes. That's what the New Testament means by a saint. It is someone who's been set apart for a purpose. It's where we get the term sanctified, set apart for a holy purpose. That's what a Christian is. And so the word Christian and the word saint, and at least in the New Testament use of the words, those are interchangeable. They're synonymous. A Christian is a saint. A saint is a Christian. So you don't have to go and look in stained glass windows in order to discover saints or in a book of martyrs. Uh, the saints are right on this call that we're on right now, in this class, in this Zoom class. So if you're a Christian, you are a saint. You have been set apart. Now, we're going to come back to that idea of being set apart, because when something is set apart, it's set apart for a purpose. When we sanctify a church, we set that building apart for a special purpose. When we sanctify vessels that are used in church for Holy Communion, we are setting them apart for a special purpose. Well, what Paul says is that we have been set apart for a purpose. The Philippians have been set apart for a purpose. The question is, what is that purpose? Well, we're going to get to that in just a little bit. But that's the way he describes. He describes himself as a slave to Christ Jesus. He describes the Philippians as people who have been set apart for a purpose. But he addresses two other groups in this introduction, and that's what I want to look at right now. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Now, this is important because what Paul is addressing here specifically is church leadership. And what we see is a very early picture of how the church was organized. These are the earliest days of the church. We know that as the church has grown over the centuries, it has grown to be enormous. There have been layers of authority, layers of tradition, magisteriums have arisen, all that sort of thing. But we get a picture here of how the church was organized in the very early days. Paul mentions two groups in particular, the overseers and the deacons. Now, the word that is translated here is overseer is an interesting word. It is the Greek word episkopoi. That's the, that's the plural form. Paul says overseers, episkopoi. Um, the singular is episkopos, episkopos. Now, that is a word that should be familiar to most of you on this call because it is translated in English as bishop. So an Episcopal church, small e, is a church that is governed by overseers or, in English, by bishops. All right, so that's the first word that Paul uses. The second word that he uses is deacons. 
Now, this is one that is familiar even to those who are not part of an Anglican or Episcopal church. The Greek word here is diakonoi. It literally means one who waits at table. One who waits at table. So Paul is addressing the congregation as a whole, the saints, but he's also sending special greetings to the leadership of the church, and he mentions two groups in particular, the overseers, the episcopoi, and those who wait at table, the diaconoi. Now, what do the diaconoi do? What do the deacons do? Keep your finger there in Philippians and turn, if you will, back to the book of Acts, because this is very important, not only in understanding what deacons do, it's also very important to understand what the overseers do and what they are called to do. So Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. This is the very early days of the church. Uh, after the resurrection, we're told there were about 120 believers. Those huge crowds that had followed Jesus in the early days of his ministry up there in Galilee, where we're told there were 5,000 plus people. Remember, Jesus fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two small fish. It was an extraordinary miracle. The only one of Jesus' miracles, incidentally, that is recorded in all four of the Gospels, which means that it really made an imprint. But those huge crowds had dissipated. As Jesus continued to teach the crowds and explain to them what the Messiah had come to do, not to be lifted up upon a throne, but be lifted up upon a cross, we're told that the people took offense and they began to fall away. So that by the time of Jesus' resurrection, there's only a handful of followers. And after the resurrection, we're told there were about 120 people, 120 believers in the wake of Easter. But something happens, and there is explosive growth in the church. And what happens, of course, is Pentecost. We're told in Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost. Peter stood up and delivered a sermon, and it was an extraordinary sermon. And we're told as a consequence of that preaching, the people were pricked in their hearts and in their conscience, and 3,000 people were added, were added to their number on that very day. So in one day, the church goes from 120 members to 3,120 members. And if you read further on in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and following, we discover that God adds to their number daily those who are being saved. So the church is growing. It's growing exponentially. It's growing and spreading like a wildfire. And that is a good thing but it creates problems. We would call these growing pains. And that's what's described for us in Acts chapter 6. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist, Hellenist means the Greek-speaking Jews, arose against the Hebrews, that is the Aramaic or Hebrew-speaking Jews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. In the early days of the church, we're told that nobody had any need. Everybody cared for everybody else. Even if they had to sell their own property and use the proceeds to relieve the suffering of their brothers and sisters in Christ, that's what they did. But we're told that as the church was growing, there were some, particularly the Greek-speaking Jews, who seemed to be neglected or overlooked. Uh, they may have been fed, but they were fed after the Hebrews or the Aramaic-speaking Jews. And uh, this became a charge, because in the eyes of God, of course, all Christians, regardless of where they come from, are equal. There's no higher-ranking Christian, Martin Luther said, than the baptized Christian. And so what was to be done about this? Well, verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, that's very important, because what the apostles are saying is that, yes, caring for the poor, caring for the widowed, caring for the orphaned, 
making sure that those who are hungry are fed. That is vitally important. That's part of the church's mission in the world, to relieve the suffering of the oppressed. God has a great heart for the poor. But if the, or the apostles were to focus on this ministry, it would have meant that they had to neglect the preaching of the word. And the preaching of the word was the top priority. So they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Remember that that word diakonoi means what? One who waits at table. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to the prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte from Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith." So the apostles recognized that there was much work to be done, but they could not do it all themselves. They recognized that as apostles, as witnesses to the resurrection, their primary responsibility above everything else was to do what? To preach the word of God. And there would have to be others who would have this servant ministry of waiting on tables. And that's where the deacons come into being. So when Paul, back there in Philippians chapter 1, greets the overseers and the deacons, he is telling us right off the bat that there is a division within the church. That there are some that, yes, are called to the preaching of the word. There are others who are called to do other ministries. Today, we would say that the real responsibility of a deacon in the first century, it was specifically to wait on tables. But what it really means is that the ministry of a deacon is to free up what we would call the priests or the clergy to preach the word. A diaconal ministry is a servant ministry. It is to free up the priests to preach the word. Now, this is very important for us as Anglicans. Why? Because sometimes people get in their mind that the job of the parish priest is to do everything. That the parish priest is the last of the general practitioners. His job is to be the parson, to visit all the sick, to go to the hospitals, to preach the most riveting sermons imaginable, to teach Bible studies, to make sure that the church's budget is balanced, to do all of those things. And what you quickly discover is that no one person could ever do that. I remember when I was interviewing for this position at St. Philip's, and I saw the parish profile, which, by the way, was the most honest and unvarnished parish profile I've ever seen in my life. It was a very honest parish profile. But then I also saw the job description of what they were looking for in a rector. And as I read through that, I quickly discovered they weren't looking for me. They were looking for Jesus. This congregation was looking for the Lord. They were looking for somebody who could do it all. There was no way that I could do it all. So a good leader does what? Surrounds himself or herself with people who are able to do the jobs that you don't do all that great in such a way that the whole body works together. That's what Paul is describing here. It's, it's not one person doing all of the work it's dividing up the responsibilities, recognizing that, yes, some have the responsibility to preach the word, and that's the primary responsibility. There are others who have other duties in the life of the church. So we see here in Philippians, bishops and deacons. Now, what is interesting, Paul doesn't use the term here, but what is interesting is that there is another term that is used by Paul elsewhere in the New Testament and by the other New Testament writers. And that is the word presbyteroi, or presbyteros. And what is interesting is that in the New Testament, that term, episcopoi, and presbyteroi are used interchangeably. They're used interchangeably. It is interesting, however, that both words are used. 
not just one. Now, the word presbyteros means elder. And it's the term from which we get Presbyterian. A Presbyterian church, unlike an Episcopal church, an Episcopal church is governed by bishops, a Presbyterian church is governed by elders. Now, Paul, as I said, uses those two terms interchangeably. You see this in the letter to Titus, uh, the first chapter, verses 5 through 7. Overseers, Episcopoi, and Presbyteroi, they're used interchangeably. But as time has come, has passed on, and as the church has evolved and grown, these three distinct words have become three distinct orders in the life of the church. So you have Episcopoi in the church today. This is in our tradition, the Anglican tradition. But in the Anglican tradition, you have all three of these orders. And incidentally, they are all ordained orders. You have Episcopoi, overseers, that is a bishop who oversees many churches in a diocese. You have Presbyteroi, elders, that is the word which is translated in English as priest. All right? So a presbyter is a priest whose primary responsibility is to do what? To preach and teach the Word of God. And you have a third group, the diaconoi or the deacons, whose primary responsibility is to do everything else that allows the priests to preach and to teach and to focus on the Word of God and worship. So you have a bishop who is an overseer whose job today is primarily to guard the good deposit that have been entrusted to us, to ensure that there's no heresy that creeps into the church. It's the responsibility of the presbyteroi, the priests, to preach and to teach the word, and it is the responsibility of the deacons, the diaconoi, to wait on tables, to do those other things that allow the elders and the overseers to perform their duties. Now, that's a bit of a tangent, but it is interesting that Paul speaks of both of these groups, and by default, really all three of these groups, right here at the beginning of this epistle. So even though the church was small in Philippi, certainly small by our standards, this was a small church, but even though it was small, it nevertheless had a division of leadership. Not one person doing it all, and getting all of the credit or all of the blame, but rather it was a division of responsibility. It is a reminder to us, again, that we all have a role to play in the life of the church. This is not a spectator sport. It's not like football, where you have a handful of people down there on the field beating each other up and 20,000 stands cheering them on. We all have a part to play. It's also a reminder to us that we have a diversity of gifts in the church. Not everybody is gifted in precisely the same way. There's a diversity of gifts, and everybody has a part to play. And if everybody's not playing their part, then the church doesn't function as effectively as it otherwise might. Keep your finger there in Philippians and turn back one book to the left, to Ephesians, because Paul talks about this diversity of gifts. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Isn't it interesting that even in those early days, there were all kinds of responsibilities in the church. Some were called to be apostles, not to wait on tables, but to preach the word. Others were called to be prophets. That's what we would call a priest today. The apostles would be the, the bishops. Then some were called to be evangelists. They had that gift of evangelism. They had the ability to share the faith. Others were called to be shepherds, pastors. Others were called to be teachers. But not everybody is gifted in precisely the same way. If the church is ever to reach unity and maturity, 
everybody has to play their part. So there's a diversity of gifts. And one of the things that we have to do as Christians is to, dis to discern what our spiritual gifts are that we might be used in the church, that we might be used to build up the body of Christ. Now, Paul goes on from there in verse 2. And look at that. All of that is just packed into the first verse. We're just now turning to the second verse. But all of that is there. As I said, almost every word is pregnant with value and with meaning. Well, now we come to the second verse where Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as this letter begins in the typical way that letters in the first century begin, with the sender stating his name and his credentials and then naming the recipients, the saints in Philippi, so the letter begins with a customary greeting. Um, normally, when we write letters today, we say, Dear John, or Dear Mary, and then we sign it sincerely. Well, there is a pattern here in first century letters, and that's what Paul uses, but with a twist. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses both the Gentile and the Hebrew or Jewish greetings. That word grace was a typical greeting in Gentile letters, in Roman letters, for example. It basically meant greetings, all right? That's what the word grace means, it meant greetings, hello. And it was the normal Gentile greeting. Paul also uses that word peace. The Hebrew word would be shalom. That was the typical Jewish greeting. If you go to the Holy Land today, um, and you see somebody, the proper way to greet them in the Holy Land is to say shalom, and they'll say shalom. It means peace. But as we're going to see, Paul does something a little different with these two terms. First of all, in Gentile greetings, it is the verb form of the word that is normally used. That word grace can be a verb, and it can be a noun. In much the same way, for example, that the word Hit, H-I-T, can be a verb or it can be a noun. So, for example, you can hit somebody, which is a verb. It's an action to strike somebody. But on the other hand, if you like baseball, or for those of you who are across the pond, cricket, you can say, he had a nice hit. So the word hit can be a verb. It can be a noun. The same is true for grace. In the Gentile greeting, it was always used as a verb. What is interesting is that in this greeting, Paul uses the noun form. So he's not simply saying greetings, he's referring to a specific kind of grace. And of course, in the New Testament, that word grace is a theological term. It's not just a, a generic hello, it is a theological term that has great significance. Because what is grace? Grace is God's undeserved, unearned favor. So right here at the very beginning of his epistle, Paul is writing to people who have been set apart by God for a purpose, and they've been set apart how? By grace. Now, a good description of God's grace in action is found in Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And if you want to, you can turn there. You don't have to. But what that verse says is this, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God demonstrates his love for us. He doesn't demonstrate his love for us in that he gives his son to die for us when we have managed to straighten our lives out, when we have managed to sort of reform ourselves, when we have managed to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. God loved us when? Even when we were his enemies. Christ died for us even when we were sinners. That's grace, you see. 
It's undeserved, unearned. You, you haven't polished yourself up. You haven't cleaned yourself up and are therefore acceptable to God. God demonstrated his love for us in that even though we weren't cleaned up, even though we were a mess, Christ died for us. That's what Paul is reminding the Philippians of what God had done for them. It was that grace that changed their life. That's what John Newton is singing about when he wrote that hymn, Amazing Grace. You all know the story of John Newton, how he had been a slave trader. He'd lived a notorious life. They said he was the worst swearer in the merchant navy. And yet God had mercy on him. And so he would sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I wonder if we sometimes just sing through those words without really thinking about what they mean. I mean, do we really see ourselves? Let's be honest. You, you have to answer this for yourself, but do you really see yourself as a wretch? It always strikes me that we sing that, 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 that hymn with such gusto. I don't think anybody can sing it without getting, getting teary-eyed. But listen to the word sometime, wretch. If I were to come up to you on the street and call you a miserable wretch, would you take offense? I would think that most people probably would. And yet that's exactly what they describe themselves as every time they sing that hymn. I once was lost. Do most people today in the 21st century in the Western world see themselves as lost, blind? But that's how John Newton saw himself. He saw himself, you see, in the light of God's eternity. He saw himself in the light of grace. He knew he was lost. He knew he was blind. He knew he was a wretch. And yet God demonstrated his love in this, that even though he was still a sinner, Christ died for him. That's what Paul is reminding the Philippians, that they were once lost. They were once blind. They too were wretches, but God had mercy on them. And the same is true for you and for me. Listen, folks, when you realize that that's how God cares for you, when you realize that grace has come into your life, it will change the way you view everything. And it did for Paul, and it did for the Philippians. It is by grace that they were saved, not by works, so that no one could boast. So when Paul says grace, he's not simply saying hello. He's reminding them of the grace of God in their lives, the grace that had saved them. But then he also says peace, grace and peace to you. Now, when Jews say shalom, peace, they don't simply mean an absence of conflict. We just want peace on earth. And what we really mean by that is, a, is an absence of conflict. But for the Jews, that word shalom means so much more than just an absence of conflict. It means peace of mind. It means peace of heart. It means contentment. It is exactly what Paul is talking about later on in this first chapter. Just skip ahead for a moment to verse 21. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's an extraordinary statement, especially for postmodern people like us. To die is to gain for those of you who were in church last night or yesterday and, or saw the broadcast on for Ash Wednesday, you heard Justin Hare um, speak about how we live in a time and in a culture in which people do everything in their power to avoid the subject of death. He said he even has young friends who refuse to allow their children to use the word death or dead in a sentence. It's almost as though it's treated as a swear word. We don't want to think about death these days. We do everything in our power to avoid death. We want to live as long as we possibly can. We hang on tenaciously to life. But I've got some news for you folks. Brace yourself. Nobody's getting out of here alive. We all have an inevitable appointment with the grave. There's a wonderful tombstone in Aquia, Virginia, Stafford, Virginia, at the old Aquia Church. If you're ever up there near Quantico or Fredericksburg or Stafford, Virginia, I encourage you to go and visit Aquia Church. It's a wonderful old Anglican colonial church. Been there forever. 
But there is a tombstone in that churchyard. And this is what it reads. Dear Pastor, pause as you walk by, for as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you shall be. Tis best to prepare to follow me. It's a somber warning, but it is absolutely true. There is a reason why churches of the colonial period had clear glass and were surrounded by churchyards. It was a reminder to the people and a reminder to the preacher every time he climbed into the pulpit that this is the fate of human flesh. And yet Paul said, to die was to gain. To die was to gain. I mean, wow, that's an extraordinary thing. To live is to Christ, is Christ, and to die is to gain. In fact, he goes on to say that he's torn. He says in verse 23, I am hard-pressed between the two, life and death. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. You see, Paul had peace, but it wasn't just an absence of conflict. He knew that death was going to come to him, and given his circumstances, it might come sooner rather than later, and yet he had a contentment about that. That was one of the things that people who followed Jesus noticed about him. There was a peace, there was a contentment, there was a serenity in Jesus' life. And that's what Paul means by shalom. He doesn't just simply mean an absence of conflicts. He means peace of heart, peace of mind, peace regardless of your circumstances. How many of you long for that kind of peace, that kind of contentment, that kind of serenity? We all do. And that's the peace that we Christians are meant to have. Now, one other thing about grace and peace that we need to note, and that is that grace precedes peace. Paul doesn't say to them, peace and grace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He says grace and peace. And one of the things that you will discover biblically and theologically is that that is the proper order. God's grace, God's undeserved, unearned favor always precedes peace. And what that means is pretty simple. In order to have the peace of God, that peace which passes human understanding, you first have to have peace with God. In order to have the peace of God, you must first have peace with God. And what that means is that none of us naturally are at peace with God. We are actually at war with God. There's a reason why we say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It is because we are constantly trespassing on God's territory. God is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He sits on the throne. But what is sin? The nature of sin is to be in charge. You see this back in Genesis chapter 3. Why did Adam and Eve eat of the tree according to the story? They ate of the tree because they wanted to be like God. What does it mean to be like God? It means to be in charge, to be the captain of your own fate, the master of your own destiny. It's to do your own thing. It's to be answerable to no one. And the problem with that, you see, is that there's only one who is self-sufficient. There is only one who is sovereign. And when you and I sin, what we're basically trying to do is to push God off the throne. We are engaging in war with him. God takes seriously the business of being God. And so when we sin, we are basically declaring war on God's throne, on his sovereignty. And so there's conflict between God and humanity. Now, here's the problem, of course, is that there is no way that you and I are going to win in this war against God. And what makes matters even worse, that even when you get to the point where you realize, okay, I can't win in this conflict against God. I'll never really be sovereign. I can never really kick him off the throne. But now I've declared war. The question is, how do you get peace? When you realize you're not going to win this struggle, how do you find peace? Normally what happens in 
uh, in a normal war is that the party that is losing surrenders and offers something to the winning party in order to have peace. But the question is, what can you and I possibly offer to God that God cannot provide for himself? The obvious answer is nothing. There's nothing that you and I can offer to God as a peace offering. But here's where grace comes in. Even though there's nothing that you and I can offer to God, God nevertheless, even though he's the injured party, even though he is the one that has been insulted and attacked, God nevertheless makes peace with us. God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, who's the injured party, makes peace with us. And my friends, that is grace. So it is God's act of love and mercy that precedes the peace that we have with him. And once we have peace with God, then and only then can we have and experience the peace of God. We all long for that peace which passes human understanding, but many people never have it because they don't have peace with God. Now, the next thing that you'll notice is that, and this is generally the case with Paul, grace and peace then give way to gratitude. Grace and peace give way to gratitude or thanks. And so here is Paul speaking to the Philippians, so grateful for them and for their ministry and for the fact that they have remembered him. He speaks of the grace of God that had saved them, the peace of God, which they now experience because they have peace with God. And the next thing he does is he erupts in thanksgiving. And let me tell you something. If you've ever experienced the grace of God in your life, if you've ever seen yourself as you really are, as a sinner, as that wretch, that blind and lost individual whom God has saved and redeemed and set apart for a special purpose, when you realize that, you cannot help but give thanks to erupt in doxology praise. And that is exactly what Paul does. When he thinks about God saving these Philippians and giving them that peace which passes human understanding, that contentment, he then gives thanks. Give thanks to whom? To God. He gives, he gives thanks to God. Let me show you another example of how Paul does this, because as I said, it's not just something that he does here in Philippians. He does it elsewhere. If you turn back again to Ephesians chapter 3, this is what Paul says. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. What Paul has been talking about in Ephesians 2 and 3 is the way God had saved the people. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were by nature, he says, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what we were prior to Christ. He said we were following the ways of the world, following our own desires and passions, and we were as a consequence under God's judgment. We were children of wrath. Most of the time we think of ourselves as children of God, but we start off children of wrath. What can change this? As I said, there's nothing you and I can offer to God to make peace, but God makes peace with us. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, not that we loved him, but that he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, there it is, you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then what Paul does in the remainder of the chapter, and the first part of chapter 3, is he describes how that works itself out practically. And then when he gets to the end of chapter 3, and he reflects on all of that, that we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We weren't merely sick, folks. We were dead. Dead people can't do anything. 
But even though we were dead, God in his mercy, not because he had to, but because he loved us, made us alive. He saved us by his grace. And when Paul reflects back on that, he cannot help but praise God. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Now, what I find particularly fascinating about that doxology in Ephesians is that Paul says that at the end of chapter 3. He's still got three chapters to go. You would expect the doxology, the praise, to come at the end of the epistle, not in the middle of it. But you see, as Paul reflects back on the grace of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God toward sinners, he can't help but erupt in thanksgiving. And that is exactly what he does here. He reflects back on the fact that these Philippians have been saved by God's grace. They're experiencing God's peace, and he gives thanks to God for them. Now, the word that is translated here is thank or thankfulness is an interesting word as well. Just like that word episkopoi and presbyteroi and diakonoi, this is an interesting word. It is the word eucharisteo. It is the word from which we get the term Eucharist. Now, do you know what the word Eucharist means? The word Eucharist does not mean communion. Now, that's what we think of. Service of Holy Eucharist is the service of Holy Communion. But that's not what the Greek word means. The Greek word means thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. That's what a Eucharist is. It is a service of thanksgiving. Now, yes, it involves communion the receiving of the sacrament. But you'll notice even in the Book of Common Prayer that the first part of the communion service is called the ministry of the word. The second part is called the Holy Eucharist. It is the great thanksgiving is the way it's described. The great thanksgiving. We are giving thanks. Thanks for what? Thanks for the word that was preached, but thanks also for the word that was made flesh and offered himself as an atoning sacrifice on the cross, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. That's the very word that Paul uses here, Eucharisteo, from which we get Eucharist. What is he thankful for? A few things specifically. First of all, he thanks them for their partnership in the gospel. Verse 5. And here in verse 5, again, Paul uses a very interesting Greek word. It's translated partnership in the English Standard Version. The Greek word is koinonia, fellowship, fellowship. Now, what does that word koinonia mean? It comes really from the kind of currency that was used in the ancient word and the kind of language that was spoken in the ancient world. The kind of Greek that was spoken in the ancient world was known as Koine Greek. It was the common Greek. It was the Greek that was spoken by most people. Paul was probably multilingual. Uh, this is one of the reasons why the gospel was able to spread so quickly in the first century world. It was the only time really in history, or the first time really in history, in which most people in the Roman Empire spoke the same language. The official language of the empire, as you all know, was Latin. Uh, many people in um, what we would call Palestine, the Roman province of Palestine, spoke a form of Hebrew known as Aramaic. Paul would have spoken Aramaic and Hebrew, and um, he would have spoken Latin probably as well because he was a Roman citizen. But the lingua franca of the day, the language that was used in commerce and trade was Greek. And that meant that if you could speak Greek, and almost everybody did, you could preach the gospel anywhere you went. But it was a particular type of Greek. It was not high Greek. It was Koine Greek. It was common Greek. Well, the word the koinonia means that which is held in common. So Paul is thankful to God for his mercy and for his grace, but he's thankful for that which he holds in common with the Philippians. And what they hold in common, of course, is Jesus Christ. There were many things in the ancient world to divide people, many things. 
we think that we live in a divided culture today on the basis of economic status or on the basis of race. Let me tell you something, folks. Our world is far more united today than at any other point in history. If you go back to the first century, people were divided upon all kinds of lines. The Greeks despised the Romans. Uh, they, they viewed the Romans as sort of boorish upstarts. The Romans, on the other hand, looked down on the Greeks as has-beens. Your best days are behind you. And both the Romans and the Greeks looked down on the Jews, and the Jews, believing that they were God's chosen people, looked down on everybody. And that's the way it was in the first century. And what Paul had discovered in places like Philippi, in places like Ephesus, in places like Antioch, was that those dividing walls of hostility, the walls that men and women have a tendency to erect because of our own prejudice and sin, those walls had come crashing down. And the people had discovered that what united them, what they held in common, koinonia, was far greater than anything that divided them. And what was it that united them? It was this mutual love for Jesus Christ and the fact that they had all been saved by God's grace. Think about that church in Philippi. What an odd mixture. I mean, you had Lydia, this woman who was a dealer in purple cloth. She was a businesswoman. She was successful. And she's worshiping side by side with what? a slave girl who had been demon-possessed. And they're all worshiping side by side with a Roman jailer. This man who up to that point had prided himself in one thing, the fact that he worked for Caesar. And now he's got a new Lord. That is the way the church should be. The church shouldn't be PLU, people like us. The church should be a whole mixture of people from every background, from every economic status, every color imaginable. And even though these things would under normal circumstances divide us, what we discover is that we, because we've all had the same experience of having been saved by God's grace, redeemed at countless cost, we are thankful to God. And what unites us is far greater than anything that divides us. So Paul is thankful for their partnership, the fellowship that they share in the gospel, the koinonia, and he is also thankful for this, that the good work that God has started in them, he will also finish. God always finishes what he starts, my friends. Now, that's not always true with you and me. There are many jobs that we start. We start a book. We don't necessarily finish it. You can drive up the highway and see a bunch of derelict buildings where people tried to start building something and they never finished it. I'm that way with, with big puzzles that are, you know, those 10,000 piece puzzles. I get very frustrated with those. I'll, I'll start it off, but I just haven't the patience to finish it. Who has the time to do that sort of thing? There are all kinds of things in life that you and I start, but we don't finish. But let me tell you something, that's never the way it is with God. God always finishes what he starts. And what Paul is reminding the Philippians of is the great thing that he had started in their life by his grace, by redeeming them. And he was going to finish that work. He was going to continue to work in their lives until that moment when he called them home. Never despair that God has stopped working in your life. If you're a Christian, if you've been saved by grace, God is at work in you. He has not forgotten you. And unlike us, God will complete what he starts. When we come back next week, we're going to take a look at this, God finishing what he starts. We have a powerful picture of this in Romans chapter 8. Theologians refer to this as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The saints, those who've been set apart, that is you, the saints will persevere to the end. Jesus said, those who persevere to the end will be saved. But the question is, is it we ourselves who persevere in and of our own strength, or is it the strength and grace of God within us that causes us to persevere to the end?
That's what we'll take a look at next week. So as you can see, a whole lot in just a few verses here in Philippians. Well, let's close with a word of prayer, and then we'll come back together again, God willing, next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this wonderful epistle to the Philippians. We thank you for being so faithful that you allowed these people to be faithful as well. They persevered, but not in and of their own strength, but by your grace in their lives. And the same is true for us. Help us to see ourselves aright as people who've been saved by grace, as people who've been set apart for a great purpose. And grant us the strength and the mercy to live into that purpose for your glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.